Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Hello everyone, welcome back. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon, good evening. Good evening indeed. Here, maybe not where you're listening. And this week we are speaking about the George Orwell essay, Boys Weekly. It's first published 11th of March, 1940. But before we start, uh, how are you, Simon? I'm very well, yourself? Not bad. And I believe you wanted to do something a bit different this week after the hellos. I just came across this questionnaire by uh, Marcel Proust, and it was his, what he considered to be his perfect character questionnaire. And I thought... Instead of just small chat, I'd like to ask you some of the questions from it. Interesting. I like questionnaires. Go ahead. It's quite long-winded, so if you could just try to, you know, All right. give it a quick, quick answer. Fire, quick okay. fire. What do you consider your greatest achievement? My greatest achievement would be moving to a foreign country in which I don't know the language and adapting to life there. What is your current state of mind? Happy. What is your favourite occupation? Reading. Uh, oh, sorry, can I change that? Uh, walking. What is your most treasured possession? My books. What is your favourite journey? It's the walk I take when I have free time around my neighbourhood uh, down to Tokyo Bay. What is your most marked characteristic? Oh, a difficult one. Um, gentleness. What is it that you most dislike? The opposite of gentleness. <laughs> Violence. What is your greatest fear? Being uh, shamed in some way. What is your greatest extravagance? Booze. <laughs> Which living person do you most despise? Despise? My God. Um, I try not to despise people, but there are plenty of politicians I despise. What talent would you most like to have? Being able to make people laugh. Ah, yeah, well, you can do that. Where would you like to live? In Britain. What is the quality you most like in a person? Hmm, decency. What is the trait you deplore in others? Cruelty. Who's your favourite hero of fiction? Fiction? Mm -hmm. I would say my favourite hero of fiction is Dr. Watson from the Sherlock Holmes stories. Which living person do you most admire? Living person? Hmm, my wife's grandmother. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? Overrated? And also, what are the virtues? <laughs> it's quite broad, isn't it? Um, okay, what would you consider a most overrated virtue? Again, what do we mean by virtues? I mean, I suppose... Good characteristic, I guess. Let's um, define as that. Overrated... I don't know, being... Uh, hardworking, I suppose, because hardworking is very much... It depends on your pace of work. 
Well, if your pace of work's slow, you're probably not working very hard. Well, you could be producing good work, but at a slow rate. On what occasions do you lie? Please turn off right now, Mrs. Hurst. <laughs> um, I would say I lie uh, when I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Which words or phrase do you most overuse? You know. I think it's, uh. <laughs> it's only because you edit this. <laughs> if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? More confidence. Oh, I'm not going to ask that one. It's a bit grim. But next one. Um, no, you, ask me the grim one. How would you like to die? In the middle of a sentence. That's not a custodial sentence. It's in the middle of a verbal sentence. <laughs> if you were to die and come back as a person or thing, what would you think it would be? What would you like it to be? What do you think it would think, be? Uh, and so I can come back as a, a person or any other kind of creature? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. Ah, a thing. I think I'd probably come back either as uh, like part of a building or a cat. Okay. Final question, what is your motto? Um, my motto is... Give people the benefit of the doubt. Well done. It's a good questionnaire, that, isn't it? It is. Like Marcel Proust de 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 devised that questionnaire so he could learn the true character of people. And it's been used quite extensively since then. Sorry for the listeners, that was a bit long-winded, but I reckon, I'm sure they all enjoyed the questions and they can go on and ask their various uh, loved ones or not loved ones the same questions. I have to say, true character... I mean, when he gave people that questionnaire, did it have to be quick fire or could they think? I think you have a bit more time. Plus, I only asked about half the questions. Because I think, you know, I might... I asked one, skipped one, asked one, skipped one. So it would go on a bit more. I might give different answers if I was given time to think about it. I think I'm going to look this up afterwards. And, and... The Marcel Proust character questionnaire. I can't wait to hear it's your It's very existentialist, answers. isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Right then, so shall we... No more small talk. That was medium talk. So let's jump into the essay. You chose this week's essay. I did. Uh, Boys Weekly's 11th of March 1940. Not sure where it was published. It doesn't say in the Everyman edition. But uh, I think this is one of uh, Orwell's top premier essays. Uh, what did you make of it, Simon? I know it was a bit long for you. Yeah, well, thanks, Lewis, for that. I wrote you a message saying, oh, so what's the uh, essay for this week, Lewis? It's your choice. Oh, Boys Weekly's, uh, page 185 on, in the Everyman's edition of all those essays. Great. So I opened it up, sat in a cafe, got myself a nice cup of coffee. Bloody hell, Lewis, 30 pages long. It flew by for me. Yeah, flew by if the flight's Tokyo to London. <laughs> Christ. It was very enjoyable, but yeah, life was paused for a week whilst I bloody read the thing. But I did enjoy it. It was good. So uh, I think that the basic themes of this essay are popular culture, social class, economics, childhood a bit, yeah, um, public schools, which uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about, and Englishness also, uh, maybe a tiny bit, but I think that's part of the essay too. If I was going to sum up the essay, I would start off by saying that at the beginning, Orwell discusses the proliferation of printed material available in cheap newsagents, 
1940. And of the like don't exist anymore, do they? Many of which don't exist anymore. I think anymore. we've called yes. them news stands now. Yes. Maybe in New York they exist, but they don't exist in Britain anymore. Very nice quote. Uh, every hobby and pastime, cage birds, fretwork, carpentering, bees, carrier pigeons, home conjuring, philately chess, has at least one paper devoted to it, and generally several. And Orwell thinks that these... Uh, papers are a very good way of gauging the state of society. Uh, what did you think of that, Simon? I, I, I very much agree. And as, as a pastime, like a hobby, I'm quite into cultural studies. I think you know that. And well, Orwell is often called the originator of cultural studies. Would you agree with that? From this essay. You know Raymond Williams, he's the, he's the godfather of cultural studies, he, he's the, the Newton, the Einstein of cultural studies, and he cites this essay as the foundation of cultural studies. So, added to all the other things we've discovered that Orwell had a profound influence upon, this huge genre, this field of academia that is now one of the most common degree courses to take in liberal arts, was unwittingly kicked off by George Orwell. That said, Raymond Williams had a lot of disagreements with this essay, but I think your um, summing up of it and the major themes is spot on. I think that at the beginning, Orwell is very careful to justify his interest in boys' weeklies and in these cheap periodicals that were very much ephemeral, they were to entertain people. When was this written, Lewis? Uh, so end of the 30s, beginning of the 40s. So the war, Second World War has just started. Yeah, I think it was published in the same month that the Nazis invaded Poland. So we know about Hitler, we know about the fascism and the Nazis, but the war at the time of writing hasn't concretely well, for Britain, they're still uh, right in the middle of the phony war, where technically Britain and Germany were at war, but nothing was really happening between Britain and Germany. But what I've never understood about that is what did it have to do with phones? I think uh, maybe a different use of phony there. Good call. Very good. <laughs> that joke rang a bell. Okay, hold on. So which theme would you like to discuss first? Let's start Mr. off with... Mr. Hurst. Do your worst. <laughs> Before I burst. Um, so, um, I think I'd first of all like to start off with economics. By the way, the listener may notice that we started drinking again for today's podcast. Last week, which if we don't do this in order, we recorded... Last week. What was the name of the podcast last week we recorded? Um, last was... week was... God, a, bo a bottle of wine and you can't remember. Um, <laughs> so last week we recorded the podcast Hanging, but we don't know when that will be released. But we did that one. And we don't know we discussed it either. Yeah, we didn't drink anything because I had a, a work meeting afterwards. But we've... Um, yeah, we've re-indulged this week, so we do apologise <laughs> if you do notice the marked difference. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to Orwellian, the relapse. Um, so Number eight. I'd, I'd quite like to start off talking about economics, actually, because... Um, so we'll start with a good one. Why do you think, Simon, 
Uh, did you notice that Orwell talks a lot about money in the first few pages? He mentions how, you know, these uh, news agents are full of tuppenny papers or twopenny papers, or they cost, uh, you know, uh, two pence halfpenny, etc., etc. Why does he talk about cost so much? I think he's inadvertently talking about the target audience who can afford to buy these weeklies with the wages they're earning, and that is Not the working much. class. Mm. Yeah, they have to be affordable for the working class, for whom they are, which for, for reasons we'll discuss later, for whom they are ultimately targeted. At. Do you think that... How much is a tuppence in today's money? Like, do you know, do you I couldn't say... I couldn't in say. a previous podcast, we have discussed this, but I'm afraid I've forgotten. Um, we couldn't say... Monsieur Bordeaux are, has made me forget. There are um, websites in which you can type in you know, two pence in 1939, and it will give you the buying power. I reckon in today's money, though, we're talking a pound or two. Mm. Well, considering that... Um, or maybe a couple of dollars, if you're listening in America. A British, a standard British newspaper these days would be about what, like a pound twenty-five? Um, a tabloid will be around fifty p. Even today? Yeah, even today, and a broadsheet would be around a pound fifty. Can't get anything for fifty p. Although the, the Sunday broadsheets are a lot more expensive because they come with the weekly magazines as well. But of course, buying power has changed so much as well. I remember when I was studying English literature at university that we had the a brilliant book in two volumes called The Norton Anthology of English Literature. And in the front of the uh, Norton Anthology, there was a table with various years, and it would tell you how much uh, buying power a certain amount of money would have in those years. That's very useful. Mm. I'd like to get a hold of a table like that. Do you have anything to add on the economics that I mentioned in the first few pages? Well, I just wanted to mention how this is a perennial interest of Orwell's, isn't it? Because, uh, have you ever read his essay, Books versus Cigarettes? No, but um, seeing as we're both non-smokers, I don't know how we're going to immerse ourselves method-style into that essay. True. Um, but in Books versus Cigarettes, Orwell basically focuses on, you know, which is more expensive and which will do you more good. Spoilers, books will probably do you more good than cigarettes. Depends on which book you're reading. Or indeed, which brand? No, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, uh, so Orwell was always very concerned with the economic dimension of everything, not just... Uh, not just day-to-day -day life, but culture as well. How much do books cost? How well, much do newspapers It's his obsession with laissez-faire capitalism. And it extends to everyday objects and how the commodification of literature and news is going on so much in the interwar period where he's writing this. One thing, uh, kind of making it a bit more casual, Simon, one thing I'd like to ask you before we move on. You mentioned how you don't think there are as many of these magazines about anymore. Um, were there magazines or periodicals you used to buy regularly? Maybe I, I should re-quote re that. There's not many boys' weeklies about anymore. True. There's an awful lot of genre-specific periodicals about. You just have to find them. I mean, mate, you can find a, a periodical on uh, paint-drying societies. Well, 
I'm sure, uh, I often go to the English language bookshops in Tokyo and even imported magazines, I could buy about three or four different fishing magazines in Tokyo yeah. in English. Whenever you think in today's society you have a niche, you're always disappointed. Uh, there's always a lot, of, a lot of other people that are into that or have thought of that before you. But that's one of Orwell's points, isn't it? That these um, magazines seem very niche, but the fact that they exist shows that a certain amount of people are into this, this niche enough to make it economically viable to run this magazine. And therefore that tells you a lot about society at large. But a lot of these periodicals are run at no profit and sometimes even at a loss because the publishers are so passionate about that niche topic that they're willing to to go through with it and they might have a bit of financial backing behind them which enables them to make a loss because readership can be in the hundreds sometimes for a lot of periodicals. I know because I've written for a few. <laughs> After this um, chat about economics, Orwell moves on to talking about specifically weekly magazines, weekly papers that are aimed towards boys, and especially two called The Gem and The Magnet, which were sort of the most venerable, uh, successful ones of the time. Um, what does he have to say about these, Simon? The thing I found most interesting is how they're both stuck in a, in a time warp. Mm -hmm. I think he says from 1900 to 1930, they're stuck in 1900, or perhaps even earlier, aren't they? Um, he says they're kind of stuck in the worldview of 1910. It's very, okay, so it's very much a pre-First pre World War worldview mm. in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And going, I've never read these boys' weeklies, but going by the passages he quotes in the essays, it does seem like that, doesn't it? And he even mentions, people don't talk like that anymore. Mm. Like when you read literature now from the 50s and 60s even, you think, oh, people don't really talk like that anymore. Like, that vernacular has kind of died out. That's something I really loved about this, was all the different kind of cultural nuances that Orwell picks up on, uh, picking up on like public school slang and saying, like even in, in 1940, which is a long time ago now, people were not talking like this. Although a lot of the slang words he lists were still going around when I was at public really? school. Really? Can you yeah. can you identify any of them? Or? Um, fagging. I was a fag, and we'll explain that later. Um, oh Christ, I can't remember offhand. They were listed there, and I remember I recognised all of them. Well, let's move on to the whole public school dimension, because... Um, one of the key parts of this essay is the romanticization of public school life because these papers these boys papers the gem and the magnet they were obsessed weren't they with public school life and the kind of glamour of it now simon you went to a public school yeah. i wanted to read you a couple of lists of what orwell sees as the uh, romantic side of the public schools 
portrayed in this literature and ask you if any of this resonates with you in your real experience. So, And I went to public school between the years of 1990 and 1998. So 50 years after this essay yeah. was written and a good 70, 80 years after these the heyday of these stories. So yeah. here are some of the, according to the gem and the magnet, the key parts of public school life. Tell me if you recognise them. Horseplay. Yes. Practical jokes. Yes. Ragging masters. To a degree. Fights. Yes. Canings. No. Football. No. Cricket. Yes. Food. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and just going on here, lock-up. Yes. Roll call. Yes. House matches. Oh, yes. Fagging. Yeah. Prefects. Yeah. Cozy teas around the study fire. No. Okay, so most of the things there, which are part of this romantic idea of public school life, you can actually relate to in a way. Yeah, but I imagine those institutions have remained, yet the dynamics of them have changed somewhat. So public schools at this time, like 1910, were much like an Oxbridge college, where you were based around a cluster and you had your own study with a fire, and you would often have somebody looking after you your little cluster of rooms would have somebody who came in to stoke the fire, clean, and make sure your tea reserves were well stocked. That's gone by the time I'm at public school. I'm like, you're in a... So when I first went, I was in a dormitory with 15 people. That's age 10. By the time I was 17, in my final year of sixth form, I'm on my own. I've got my own study. And it decreased gradually until that stage. But ne never were there health and safety, Lewis. By the 90s, there's no, they're not entrusting a 16-year-old with an open fire in their room. Although we did have, we were allocated each week a certain amount of tea bags. And it was left outside our door on the Monday morning. I think it would be maybe so, enough for three cups of tea a day. So maybe we'd get 21 tea bags. And Three cups of tea a day to a British person is a drought, isn't it? I know, maybe the struggle. There's a whole tea bag consortium going with like backdoor dealings and all sorts. But like, I'll do your homework for two tea bags. <laughs> <laughs> and each morning, three slices of white or brown bread was also left at your door. So you could have toast and each cluster of rooms had to share one block of butter each week. One block? Yeah. Again, that's, uh, that's a bit limited. A bit limited, mm. so you have to be thin with the butter. So you can see how the institution has survived, yet the dynamics have been sanitised. As someone who actually experienced public school life, well, actually, before I ask you this, did you ever read these kind of public school stories? Ah, no. So in the essay, Orwell goes through the, the different characters of the story that you typically or stereotypically found at a public school. Are you able to list off what those characters are? Yes, I have here um, page 195. Uh, the normal, athletic, high-spirited boy, a slightly rowdier version of this type, a more aristocratic version, a quieter, more serious version, a 
a stolid bulldog version, reckless daredevil types of boy, the definitely clever studious boy, and the eccentric boy who is not good at games but possesses some special talent, and of course the scholarship boy. That was me. Tom Redwing. You were Tom Redwing. I, I was that boy because, so my father served in the military and at the time, this has since stopped to exist, but at the time, no matter what your rank, if you were serving abroad, you could get your children, if they got a certain grade in the 11 plus, do you remember that? Did you do that? Exam? No, it was a very English thing. Okay. Well, it's an exam you do when you're 10, despite being called the 11 plus. And it's, if you do really well in that, you can get scholarships to go to a public school. I did very well, so I managed to get the military scholarship to go for free to a public Not free, but my parents did pay, but nowhere near what they would, they wouldn't have been able to afford it. So I was like the, I'm not trying to romanticise myself here, but I was the working class boy at the public school. And what is the point that Orwell makes about the place of the scholarship boy in these stories? For the readers to have somebody to relate to. Because who are the readers of most... Working class of? boys who aspire to be the other boys in the book. Working class and middle class boys who maybe go to grammar schools. Well, he mentions in this, doesn't he? He says the, the lower level public school... People listening might be confused when we say public school. In England, it's, or Britain, it's quite complicated. Public school around the rest of the world means private school. Uh, a school where you have to pay an awful lot of money to supposedly receive a higher level of education. And they're very elitist. But anyhow, he says the lower level of public school, where people who couldn't afford the real thing, but could, like shopkeepers' sons, later would go on to be what we call grammar schools, which now we call academies. Because I don't think grammar schools existed in 1939. I didn't know that. My mum went to one. Mm. I'm like, what kind of schools did you I know you went to a state school, or somebody from America, that's just a, your ordinary government school. What Amer American, I would suppose, would call a public school. Yeah. Um, so what about, what about your parents? My mum went to uh, Pearly Grammar School for Girls, um, and my dad went to, I think, a... It was either a comprehensive or it was a vocational school. Um... But it was very much a kind of practical kind of education my dad got. He became an engineer afterwards. Yeah, so he obviously did very well. When it became established within my family that I was going to go to a public school, we were living in Hong Kong at the time, hence the scholarship. And my father and I went back to England to visit five different public schools and to choose which one I would end up going to. And although I was very young at the time, I have vague recollections now of my father just being very taken aback by this because my, my dad went to like a village school and he had to leave at the age of 14 and he wasn't allowed to do PE because his parents couldn't afford the PE uniform, you know. So for him suddenly to be walking around these schools which were 700 years old with his son going there must have been a very complicated and confusing experience for him. What we have to remember is Orwell is writing at a time when there was still very limited social mobility, but then after the Second World War, social mobility really jumped, didn't it? Well, we are a prime example of that, mm. my family. So 
I define myself as middle class now because I've had a university education, I work in a job which is typically defined as upper middle class. My cultural capital, social capital, would be defined as middle class, but I am, by blood, working class from a working class family. This wouldn't have happened a hundred years ago in England. Well, yes, a hundred years ago, my ancestors were digging coal out of the ground, so similar... Yeah. And you wouldn't be a university-educated person doing a podcast on Orwell. Living across the other side of the world. Exactly. Um, what, do you, what I really wanted to ask you, though, was what do you make of this romanticisation of public school life and literature as someone who went to a public school? Do you know what? I, you're probably expecting me to, to be very critical. And to an extent I am. What it is, is a gross exaggeration of the truth. But what fiction isn't? True. You know, life is relatively mundane for most of us. So what fiction isn't? What disturbs me, which probably is a theme you want to come to later, are the elements of conservatism, right-wing propaganda, conservatism within these stories. And the reality of how that does still exist at public schools. Well, let's move on to that. Orwell makes the point that all of these stories in The Gem and The Magnet, in a way, intellectually, politically, uh, in terms of their whole atmosphere, they're stuck in 1910. So much has happened since the First World War, but they don't take it into account at all. Why is it that they're stuck in 1910? It's that romanticism of the past and what the British Empire represented in 1910 is different to what it represents in 1940 when Orwell's writing this essay. And the press companies that are publishing these are, in, are, are invariably right-wing press. And the editors of these magazines or the directors of these press conglomerates are almost definitely alumni of public schools. And at the time, probably Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, Durham, St. Andrews, Edinburgh. So they're very invested in maintaining the status quo in the class system that's benefited them. So anything they publish has to be loyal to that, to those virtues they are espousing. Yes, I agree with you there. And also... It really put me in mind of Decline of the English Murder. Do you remember how Orwell said our great period in murder, our Elizabethan age, was between 1850 and 1925? And we uh, talked about how that coincided with the height of the British Empire, more or less. Um, I mean, even today in 2021, there's British people who bemoan the decline of British Empire yeah. and how great a society we were at the turn of the 20th century, mm. well, 19th, 20th and, century. And people who think that with Brexit, I mean, not to get too uh, <laughs> political, uh, people who say that we can have a British Empire Mark II with Brexit. Christ. I mean, as opposed to that, we're going to have the breakup of Britain, let alone British Empire Mark II. But anyway, I, 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 I would like... I would like to express my loyalty. <laughs> um, oh, you tell me off, off air. <laughs> um, so, I almost 
carried out a citizen's arrest on you at times. <laughs> hung you up outside. Please, please, please let me back. Please let me renew my passport. Um, so, yes, height of the British Empire. And these stories are written as if the British Empire is still at its height. There was a, a quote I particularly uh, liked, which was... So, the, Orwell writes that the attitude of this, these stories is that, quote, page 209, there is nothing wrong with laissez-faire capitalism, that the foreigners are unimportant comics, and that the British Empire is a sort of charity concern which will last forever. Yeah. Uh, so that's what these stories suggest. And, and who is reading these stories? It's young people. It's people who are not really clued up as to current politics. Well, can I, on that topic you've just said, can I add another quote? Go on. So, Orwell wrote that the weeklies, these boys' weeklies, serve the function of instilling into the minds of these young boys, I should say young people, the ideas that, open quote, the problems of our time do not exist, that there is nothing wrong with laissez-faire capitalism, that foreigners are unimportant comics and that the British Empire is a sort of charity concern, like you said, which will last forever. But do you think that's what's happening now? That by focusing on patriotic matters and an idea of what Britain is, they are distracting from the realities of our society, which is the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. I think that... The rich and the not-rich. I know that Brexiteers would criticise me for going on and on about it and call me a Ramona, but uh, I think that so much of Brexit has just been flag-waving to hide the real problems in British society, which are income inequality, a poorly managed system, lack of proper regulation. Yes, I think, again, we're seeing simple answers to complex situations. Yeah. I mean, it all started in Britain after... How long was the Blairite government? Was it 12 years? About 10, 11 years. So it all started after that, after 11 years of a Labour government. So many Tories, which is the Conservative Party on the right, were just so disturbed that this movement started. Well, and I must say, you know, I think the, the Blairite government... The Blairite government... never happened again. The Blairite government needs to come in for some criticism because, uh, as you say, 11 years of a government which completely wasted its chances with foreign adventurism. Lewis, uh, we mentioned I went to a public school, so I was able to give insight on that. But I, I don't know this, I generally don't know this, but I'm absolutely certain that you have a background of reading a 21st century equivalent of a boys weekly. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. I knew it. Uh, not just that, but, well, I think we've talked about comics before, and I was quite surprised to learn that you didn't read The Beano or The Dandy, but I did. And they had uh, characters in there who were in public schools, and that was great fun to read. For me, it never struck me that I was buying into an ideology. I thought I was just reading about the fun adventures of a boy... Uh, getting one over on his schoolmasters and 
What was the what was the stereotype of the public school boy in those magazines? It was read? that he was a bit of a kind of. It's like Orwell mentions, you know, it's these strong characters, these leaders um, who uh, manage to make a fool of the masters. They're kind of Robin Hood type figures and um, they're kind of wheeler dealers as well. Um, and also, of course, you know, what is the big public school myth of my generation? It's Harry Potter. Um, That's a wizard school. Yes, it's not it, a public school. Well, but it, it's a board. <laughs> it's, it's based a, on a boarding school. I mean, it's basically, you know, you can trace a line from Tom Brown's school days, which was written in the 1840s, right to Harry Potter. Because it's all about people going away to public school and finding themselves and making friends and you know when I explain to my Japanese friends here that the type of school I went to it seems a bit weird to them because nothing exists like that here and in the end I just say it's like Hogwarts yeah. <laughs> and then they're suddenly on board mm. and I, I become mythologized but I was rather I thought it was quite interesting when then I showed were... them my coin trick We've had a lot of fun with that coin trick. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I did find it quite interesting when Orwell pointed out that it seems that it's only Britain that has these public school, literature of public school fantasy. I mean, this type of school does exist around the world, but not such a subculture has been built around them. And they're private or public schools in other countries weren't incorporated in order to educate the ruling establishments of an empire like ours was. Even to this day, so many, I mean, especially in the last decade, so many of uh, the people in the highest positions in Britain went to Eton or Harrow or Winchester. Winchester. Yeah. I mean, our current... Prime Minister. And the... The one before him. Well, the one before Theresa May. The one before Theresa May. Theresa May, working class hero who didn't go to a public school. Yeah. His <laughs> Chancellor of the Exchequer, the current Prime Minister's Chancellor of the Exchequer, all went to Eton or Winchester. And then the list goes on. And then that can be extended into Oxford and Cambridge Universities as well. And then you have... Um, sort of traditional phrases like the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton yeah. that links British, the fate of the British uh, establishment with the public school. Where was Blucher in, uh, educated? Probably in the Hofswurst Schnapps Pilsner <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, School of Prussia. Mm. That's where the Battle of Waterloo was won, my friend. <laughs> in a beer hall somewhere in Prussia. German apologist. But anyway. <laughs> so it's interesting to see that, you, that, that, that these magazines still exist and you have read them. So well, you I didn't go say... to a public school, Lewis. Mm. You should have. For people that well, know you, my you parents, really should have. And I think you would have thrived. Well, this is the funny thing. Your parents thing. are left wing, aren't they? Yes, they would have never allowed it. They would have gone um, for that. And I don't have any public school. Like you, we're both from a very similar class background, but I never got the chance to go to public school. My parents would have never wanted me to. 
And um, your parents are educated left wing. So they made a conscious decision that their children wouldn't be educated at public school. Whereas my parents are uneducated, apolitical. So for them, they would have just innocently seen me going to public school as a natural social climbing. Apolitically, they'd have thought about that, you know? Quite interesting, the different perspectives, isn't it? Speaking of being apolitical, uh, Orwell goes on to write about ideology in this essay and how these school stories, in his opinion, promote snobbery, snob fantasy as he calls it, to basically promote the status quo. He quotes, there is no clear and obvious reason why these adventure stories should necessarily be mixed up with snobbishness and gutter patriotism. There's no obvious reason beyond what you've just said, ideology. What do you think, though, about the whole idea of ideology in these stories? I, I believe that you have looked into the man who wrote some of these stories? Well, it's interesting because when this essay was published, there was a riposte. So the, the, the pen name under these stories, or the ones that were set at, at Greyfriars Public School, which is, one of the, which is where the character Billy Bunter went to school in these, in these stories, um, he came out and under his pen name, Frank Richards, wrote an essay in The Horizon, which is where this was published after its publication, in repost to Orwell's accusations. So his, his real name was Charles Hamilton and his pen name was Frank Richards. And he's in the Guinness Book of Records for most prolific fiction writer of all time. Really? Yeah, he's, he's generally in the Guinness Book of Records for having spent the most hours in a lifetime writing fiction, published fiction. And in his repost, he defended his stories saying the, they represented working-class sensibility, which valued patriotism, self-respect, and decency. That sounds very UKIP to me. By the way, Charles Hamilton was public school educated, <laughs> telling us all about how uh, the working class define themselves. Now, this is where he gives himself away. In his defence to the accusation that these stories are stuck in time, notably 1910, he says in the essay, how the world was much better in 1910 without nonsense such as lipstick, makeup, general strikes and endless chatter. I think he gives the game away there, as opposed to the reasoning why he has paused time in 1910 for writing these stories. Yes, it does sound a bit like uh, he couldn't really deal with modern things like women's suffrage and all yeah. that sort of thing. The, the time of empire when he grew up must have just seemed so orderly and logical to him, and being like, a man who went through the public school system. And like Orwell says, like nothing will ever change. Yeah. And he, he's given the game away himself. And 
Quite famously, his riposte essay is quoted by academics in cultural studies as a defence for Orwell's argument. So instead of defending himself, he just ended up adding weight to the argument of Orwell. One final thing I wanted to talk about, Simon, was did you see... By the way, have you read 1984? Yes. Um, as an Orwellian, I have to make the embarrassing admission that I tried to read 1984 at the age of 13 and gave up and haven't read it since. I will try again soon. I can probably appreciate it better at 30 than I could at 13. But well, when you do read it, we should do a podcast. I know this oh, is yes. about his essays, but maybe we could dedicate one, definitely, one definitely. edition to, to talking about the book. Did you see any of the roots of 1984 in this essay? I certainly to be honest with you, Lewis, I deliberately try not to do this too much with, with his essays and novels, because I would feel as though I'm being a bit lazy when I say, oh, you can see the roots of Animal Farm here, you can see the roots of 1984 here. And it's a bit, I just find on my part, it would be a bit lazy to say that, because I'm pretty sure we could stay for every single essay. Definitely. I mean, this is a man who had an adjective named after him. So, of course, there's going to be elements of his argument in everything. True. Well, well, we've seen how each essay is linked to every other essay. But when he was writing about the um, modern American-inspired uh, boys' papers and magazines, I saw some of the hints of his later concerns that he explored in 1984, uh, particularly this idea of leader worship, uh, violence, sadism. Uh, I think, say, you know, you, want, you could do a whole PhD on Orwell and sadism, because it's one of his real concerns, this idea of um, inflicting pain on other people and, and well, the political dimensions of that. You've already mentioned once in this podcast the decline of an English murder, and one of the themes of that was the oncoming Americanization of British society. And it comes up again in this essay, doesn't it? But with regards to the weeklies. And so American culture, now and at that time, these weeklies had to be more sensationalist because they're based on sales, making money for the publisher. Not so much ideology, but just pure capitalism. Mm. So just a mundane story about a bunch of schoolboys playing pranks on a schoolteacher doesn't cut it in the American market, whereas brutalist, bloody, gory sensationalism will. And again, that's one of the reasons that Orwell concludes that these uh, outdated school stories, even though they are completely reactionary in one way, I think for Orwell, he finds them a bit nobler yeah. and, and a bit more wholesome yeah. than the kind of modern stuff that's coming out of America. Because he can see, again, it's, again we, we, we've discussed this in the podcast, the whole kind of the continuum between extreme capitalism and fascism uh, and how yeah. um, one kind of leads into the other if you don't keep an eye on it. Another interesting thing is the Americanization of the weeklies, or the direct import of American weeklies, 
are often based around a hero character or anti-hero character, which espouses American capitalism and individualism over a collective. Because the British weeklies, despite being right-wing and for empire, were about the collective. Although Billy Bunter became... Why have I heard of Billy Bunter? He's just, as, as Orwell points out in the essay, He's just one of these characters like uh, Sherlock Holmes or Fu Manchu or Professor Moriarty, who you maybe you've never read a story which includes him, but you know who he is. Because the way he describes him and his quotes in this essay, he doesn't seem anything special. He's, he's the fat owl. Mm. He's, he's the butt of all the jokes in all the stories, really. Because... But why do I know the name? Is Billy Bunter Cockney rhyming slang for something? I don't think it is, but I think he's just, he was such a recognisable character at the time, and um, the name itself is just so, again, like I say, it's one of those names that when you hear it, you maybe never read a story which, you maybe never read a story which includes him, but you know what he looks yeah, like yeah. somehow. He's really, I, I don't know why, but I thought, I knew the name Billy Bunter, but I thought he was a working class hero. I didn't realise he was a public school boy. I mean, it is quite a working class sounding name. It is, isn't it? I just think like Billy Bunter, like Biff Bang Bong kind of guy. Um, before we finish, can I just tell you one more quote, which is something I think sums up these weeklies quite well, although I've not read them, but from the way Orwell described them. He says, as for class friction, trade unionism, strikes, slumps, unemployment, fascism, and civil war, not a mention. They don't go anywhere. They don't talk about sex, he says. Why, why are they sexless, these weeklies? Well, it was a time when it would be very controversial to bring up sex at all. And as Orwell points out, the kind of sex which rears its head in the one gender public school yeah. at that time w would even be illegal. So he, he hints at that, doesn't he? And when people know I went to a public school, that's often like something that's thrown at me. I'm very sorry. I must say, I, I think of myself as progressive, but I've often made jokes. No, 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 no. But I have to say, I never saw it or never heard of it. Um, if it went on, it went on without my knowledge. Although... At the time, I thought, I hope this doesn't come across badly, but I thought, that fella's a little funny. As I've grown older, I now realise he was most likely homosexual and just a bit different. I have to say, as someone who didn't go to a public school and who grew up in a kind of left-wing milieu, mm -hmm. um, I think that the whole lampooning of public schools in relation to sexuality, it's something that needs to be addressed on the left, because I think those of us who are on the left who like to mock public schools and public school life still try, still fall into the old patterns of making those kinds of jokes about that. Which but is it, contradictory to it, the left's yes, ideals. Isn't because it? It, it's, it's a form of prejudice and it's, yeah. um, it's a form of victimisation of minorities. And it's not, you shouldn't be making jokes about public school boys based on sexuality. You should be making jokes about 
the privilege, privilege yeah. and the uh, perhaps even accents, exactly hairstyles, mm. but not not sexuality. But it, public schools, something that has continued to this day from those days, and people listening to us who went to one will probably get very angry to hear this, but it's prejudice. There is prejudice. My public school, and it was in Lincolnshire, which doesn't help, but it was very homogenous ethnically. And the banter was very homophobic, very macho, very sexist. Stuck in 1910, would you say? And even, I dare to say, classist. Because you've got people who just grow up copying their fathers. Because it was all boys' school where I went. And they're just copying their fathers, who inevitably went to public school as well, and copied their fathers, and these attitudes prevailed. It was only when I left public school, and I took a year off and went and lived in Africa and spent time with people who weren't public school educated, I very quickly gained an insight into the reality of society and changed my ways before I went on to tertiary education. Well, I really enjoyed that, Simon. Um... I think I've learned a lot from that myself, and thank you. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome, you working class scum. <laughs> All right. Then, uh... And by the way, before you leave, don't forget to dust off the, the shelves. Yes, sir. Sorry, yeah, sir. Thank you. Totally I noticed that last week you did a pretty sh- shabby job. Of... Unfortunately, you can't hear me tugging my floor lock in the microphone. But, uh, <laughs> um, well, everyone, as we always like, what do we always like to say, sir? I refuse to say Orwell does end as well, and uh, I'll, I'll bring you your crumpets uh, <laughs> presently. Ta-da!